You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, I'm glad to be back here. Uh, I appreciate you being here. This is the first of five in which I'm going to talk about, as you see there, the title of the series is called The Atonement. What is it? And it's a word we don't use a whole lot, uh, but you can think of it in a kind of a simple sense, at one month, at one month atonement. That is, how do we know we are at one with God? How can we understand what Christ has done for us? How do we know, account for our reconciliation, our redemption, our justification with God in the work and acts of Christ? And so, that's what this whole series is about. Various explanations that have been given about how we have at one month with God. You're probably familiar with this painting. I'm using it just as an image to get us started here. It's one of the great paintings, I think, frankly, in all Christendom. It uh, was painted in 1515 by Matthias Grunwald. It's in uh, nowadays in Colmore, France. Any of you been there? I have a chance this summer to go there, and I'm going to try to do it. Uh, Something I've always wanted to do. This is called, uh, obviously, the crucifixion of the famous Eisenheim altarpiece. Just a little story about it. I find this very fascinating. Uh, there was, uh, during the 16th century, as you know, the plague was just ravaging everyone. And there was a form of the plague called St. Anthony's fire that would afflict the nerve endings to the point where people felt like they were on fire. St. Anthony was the founder of the Christian monastic movement. And it was said that people would see him in his cell as though there was a flame burning above his head on fire like the Holy Spirit, Pentecost being on top of him. So this plague was named after him and people were dying just in abject pain and there was a monastery that specialized just outside of, um, I mean it was in Germany, specialized in treating people with this particular form of the plague. They did herbal treatments and all kinds of um, uh, care, uh, treat washings and so on to help these people in their last days to endure the horrible pain they were going through. But one thing they thought they would do to help them understand how God still loves them even within the midst of this horrible situation is that they commissioned this very famous Renaissance painter named Grunwald to paint these. And there are several of them. There are panels that fold out during various times of the years with biblical figures and historical figures in them. But to paint how God knows what they're going through. God suffers along with them. And so he, he painted this very painting here at the center of this chapel. And as you see, that's uh, the mother of Jesus on the left with John the Apostle. And this is John the Baptist here pointing to him. And that's the point that I want to make about this. That all doctrines, all attempts to explain, to give an account of how we know we're saved, how we have been reconciled with God, is a witness. It's not a scientific proof. It's not like a mathematical formula that we follow out. But it is a witness, a testimony to this reality here that the church's attempt to come up with some sort of reasonable, somewhat logical explanation about how do we know we say is just a witness. It's just a testimony. It's like John the Baptist. I must decrease. That is, our intellectual efforts are limited. They're modest. 
but so that he can increase, that we can give proper testimony and witness to the reality that we know that the church is based on, that the church witnesses in her worship and her acts and so on. And so that's really what, I know that may sound rather presumptuous on my part, I want to be like John the Baptist here for these next five Sundays, give witness to what that experience is about. We know it has happened. My doctrine doesn't prove that it happened. Your logic won't make it real. Rather, they clarify what is real. And what I want to do is to talk about five such of these doctrines <clears throat> that's true. well I, I don't have what I want anyway uh, in the next Sundays what I'm going to be talking about is today I'm going to be talking about what's called the satisfaction theory that Christ satisfied the debt that we owed to God. And we're going to look at a very famous representative of that named Anselm of Canterbury, St. Anselm. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about how Christ's death, how we know we're saved and that we've been ransomed from death itself. We've been freed from the eternal strangleholds of death upon us. Then the following Sunday, we'll talk about how the example of Christ has persuaded us to live a transformed life. And that's called the moral persuasion theory uh, we'll look at a famous medieval philosopher named Abelard who talked about that. Then the fourth Sunday, we're going to look at how Christ has redeemed the cosmos. Not just you and me and not just us, but the whole cosmos itself. A new heaven and a new earth. And this is like an, a, a famous early church uh, theologian named Irenaeus. He had a theory called recapitulation. And I'll talk about that. And then uh, the fifth Sunday, we'll talk about how Christ has overcome evil, that Christ is our victor, our conqueror, who fights for us, who is on the forefront, overcoming the darkness of the world. And that's called the Christus Victor, Latin phrase, uh, to account for how we have salvation is that Christ is in front, clearing the way for us to live. All right, but today, uh, a couple of things I want to make clear, and this will be a theme that will go throughout the five Sundays here with you, and that is the multifaceted reality of the atonement. And it is, it's vast, it's it's... Well, we could use a good theological word. It's mysterious. You know, the difference between ignorance and mystery. Ignorance is the more you know, the less there is to be known. So you overcome ignorance with knowledge. That's not a mystery, though. A mystery is the more you know about something, the more you know that you don't know everything about it because of its reality. For instance, if you're a, a biologist, the more you know about I don't know, the genetic code of fish or something, the less you don't know about it. The more you know, the less you don't know. But when we come to God, when we see what God has done for us in Christ, like what's depicted there in that painting, the more we study it, the more we put our mind to it, the more devoted we are, the more we are aware that we're in front of a reality greater than anything we can comprehend. So our knowledge is not to overcome ignorance. If you're a scientist or a teacher or whatever, my main goal in some ways is to overcome ignorance. But in theology, though, we study not to overcome ignorance, but to become aware of mystery. That's what we do. And so what I'm wanting to do is to account for that. And one way we, I think we can be faithful to the mystery of God and God's act in Christ, how we're redeemed in Christ, is to admit that there are various facets of it that need to be recognized. Not just one. We're not going to reduce it just to one viewpoint, one idea, one doctrine, but recognize that this reality that we point to, like John the Baptist, exceeds all of our accounts. So all of our accounts 
are giving some sort of recognition to the same reality. That's why I call it multifaceted reality. You know, for instance, in Scripture, look at all the ways in which salvation is depicted in Scripture. Salvation itself, redemption, propitiation, ransom, example, victory, these are all biblical concepts. In church history, the doctrines that have given satisfaction, that's the one we're going to talk about today. Then we're talking about ransom from death, the moral influence theory, the restoration of the cosmos, and the defeat of evil itself. Those are all good viewpoints, and they all need to be recognized. Uh, this may seem like uh, splitting too many hairs, which in my state is a risky thing to do. But, uh, but I make a distinction between heresy and bad theology. You can be a bad theologian and not be a heretic. All right? Heresy is when you deny the reality that it, Christ has indeed redeemed us. When you deny that. You say, no, that really didn't work. It may be interesting, but Christ really didn't reconcile us to God. Now, that, I would say, is heresy because it's another teaching. That's a contrary teaching to the very core beliefs of the church itself. The church exists because of what John the Baptist was doing, witnessing the redemptive work of God, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world himself. To deny that, I would say, is just heresy. Bad theology, though, in this case would be someone who says there's only one legitimate interpretation of the mystery of salvation. That all these others are wrong. That it, the, the experience itself can be fully comprehended in one particular doctrine and all we need to do is to affirm one particular doctrine. So I'm saying that's bad theology. Why? Because reality is not reducible just to one concept. We are talking about a mystery. We're talking about something that exceeds our ability to grasp it. And the closer we get to it, the more comprehensive it becomes. And that's why the study of Scripture, the study of theology, is not a, a, an intellectual... Well, it is an intellectualization, but it's not a confusing. It's not a, a, a distraction from the purpose of the Christian life, I think. The more you study these things, the more you become aware of just the greatness of God. And hence, at an... I think it equips us to even live more faithfully as disciples. At least that's true for me, and I think in principle it's true as well. All right, uh, as I've said here, what we're talking about is a mystery. And one way to recognize that indeed, that this reality is so vast, so overwhelming, so comprehensive, is to try to see truth in all of these theories. That's what I'm going to do. I'll also talk about some weaknesses of each of these theories, which in a sense will say we can never just settle on one. I've known people that do that. Uh, I think that's bad theology. Now, it would be okay theology if we could fully understand the cross itself. If it were kind of a thing in which we could come to knowledge without ignorance. But all of our knowledge of God is about something that we really cannot fully know itself. And that's reality of God. All right. Can I ask one quick question? Yes, you may. I don't know that much about Buddhism or Islam or whatever, but I'm just wondering, do you know, do they have all of this multifaceted aspect to it such that they would go into, that they look at it like you're, you're describing, at, at the more you know, the more mysterious it is. Is it, does it go into this depth? Well, that's a good that? question. You know, a lot of religions, well, one, they don't all think the same. And secondly, they admit also that they have multiple views, multiple explanations of their sense of ultimate reality. You mentioned Buddhism just quickly. Um, 
if you know much about Buddhism, it's divided in two big categories, what's called the Theravada Buddhism, and that form of Buddhism, like with Thailand and Burma, they try to stay right with the ancient scriptures themselves of Siddhartha himself. And so their devotion is on the person of the founder of Buddhism, Siddhartha. Then Mahayana Buddhism, which is the largest form, Japan, Korea, and the Buddhism that we know here in the United States, Zen Buddhism, is Mahayana. And its emphasis is more on what's called the Bodhisattva, that is the person who has come to enlightenment himself or herself. They become sort of holy objects in themselves. So there's, a, there's differences even among these kinds of religion. Islam, uh, you know, the Sufis, which is the mystical branch of Islam, will talk about how they know Allah in a little way quite differently, well, far more and more personally, mystically, than the Sunni would. And so, yes, all these religions are quite complicated. Yeah, <clears throat> that's right. <clears throat> you know, I, I, the study of the world religions was sort of the subdiscipline of mine in graduate school, and I taught it some, and so I've always been interested, and I've been privileged to be around. And I've come to realize all these religions are incredibly complicated, just as ours are. You cannot simplify a religion just down to a handful of statements. Yeah. Okay, be that as it may, good question. But but before I leave this, though, any anyone else have a point? Because I'm going to be coming back to this. And you may want sometimes say, well, Dr. Sanders, tell us which one is the truth. And I'll say, well, they're all true in a way. Good enough? All right. Uh, the one I'm going to concentrate on today is this very famous 11th century uh, theologian, philosopher, Archbishop of Canterbury, buried there in Canterbury, in fact. Some of you have been to Canterbury Cathedral. As you walk up to Trinity Chapel, right there on the right is a chapel in which Anselm is buried. Uh, a very famous philosopher. People still write books about him, dissertations on him, and he had a tremendously acute logical mind, which he applied to all kinds of doctrines, and he applied it to this idea of atonement. That is, how do we know, how can we account for the fact that we have been reconciled with God? And he writes it in this book called Cur Deus Homo, which he published actually before he became Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, just as a historical aside, once he became Archbishop of Canterbury, he is always running for his life. He was exiled twice by various kings. And so, you know, the politics took over a saint. Uh, probably hurt a lot of great things that he could have done elsewise. Be that as it may. Um, he uh, finished this book when he was at the Abbey of Westminster there in London. He was studying there just a year before his appointment to Archbishop and. Uh, one of the major concerns, interestingly, that was going on in England at that time in Christianity was the challenges that they were getting from Jews and from Muslims that Christianity was actually a blasphemous. Uh, for Muslims, it was blasphemous because we said that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And for Islam, that's an impossibility. No way could Allah become a creature. Uh, Judaism considered Christianity blasphemous because there's no way the creator of the world would become incarnate in a woman. They felt like that doctrine was not an outgrowth of Judaism. They felt like it was an actual blasphemy against Judaism. And so Anselm took it to task to try to explain to the challengers to Christianity that the claim that the church has that Jesus Christ was fully human, fully divine, the Son of God, 
is, in fact, a legitimate theological doctrine, that it's not blasphemy, that this is consistent with the nature of God. And one way in which he accounts for that is he writes this book called Cur Deus Homo, a Latin phrase, obviously, which means, why the God-man? Why did God become man? Why was Christ incarnate? Why was he born a woman? Why could we say that Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, crucified, resurrected in Jerusalem, was a man, fully human? And this is at the core of the Christian faith. Uh, the, the church had, I mean, the scriptures have no doubt about his humanity, also no doubt about his divinity, even though he explained it in rather, you know, uh, taxing ways, and the early church thought that through as well, that you know, our faith is based on this, this reality that Christ wasn't just a human who became a God, or just a God that appeared like a human being, that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, and to the Muslim and to the Jew, that's blasphemy, and so what Anselm tries to do in this book is to explain why God became a man, why it is reasonable, not blasphemous, to think that indeed Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. Also, um, uh, Anselm uses some concepts that in some ways were far more prevalent in his day than in our day. And one of them is the concept of honor. Honor was far more of an important notion than what we have for today. I suspect you don't use it very much. You're not around that word very much. I know at Sanford we have what's called an honors code. And most academic institutions have honors code. And I was on the committee that wrote the new one. And uh, one of the first things that we tried to do was to define what the word honor means. And nobody could come up with a definition of what it meant. But in the medieval period, though, everybody knew exactly what honor was. And what honor was is how one recognizes and promotes the proper order of things, that the world is created, that society has a structure to it, and that structure gives it stability and meaning and ultimately justice and beauty as well. That things were ordered in a way with, a, let's say, a king and then the knights and then the workers and so, that around a castle there was a structure that was all quite tight and quite meaningful. And if in some way or another the king was assassinated or died, it put everything else in jeopardy. If just a common person died, that would be sad enough as it is. But society could go on. But society cannot go on without the top, the ruler. And ultimately with the cosmos as well, that God is the top. That is, God is the reality that gives order to everything. Everything has its proper place. And in its proper place, there's a beauty to it and a justice to it. That God has structured the world in a certain way. That you fit where you are and they fit where they are and the stars fit where they are. Everything is ordered by this kind of wonderful, beautiful scheme with God at the very top of it. Honor is recognizing that order and promoting it. That's what it means to be honorable. You're an honorable person by recognizing the, uh, the ordered world that God has created. And in such a notion as that, the very worst thing to do, the most deleterious act, would be that which brings dishonor on the top. Because if you dishonor the top, it has ripple effects all the way down to the bottom. You can do something bad at the bottom, and its consequences are rather limited. But if you challenge the top, if you dishonor the king, 
That jeopardizes the stability of the kingdom. If you dishonor God, you have jeopardized the goodness and beauty of creation. Sin, for Anselm's view here, he'll talk about it in different ways in other books, but here in this book, he talks it mainly as dishonoring of God. You, You do not do to God what is owed to God, and you take away from something, you take away something from God that is actually owed to God. That is dishonoring. It's not just that you now are at odds with God. Your dishonoring disrupts everything. I mean, think about a family, the nature of a family. Uh, whenever one person, especially like a parent, gets very ill, uh, think of the consequences that it has. Let's say you're the breadwinner of your family and you get very ill and you cannot uh, bring in any money to help pay the bills and so on. Look how unstable and fraught with anxiety the rest of the family becomes. I mean, sickness in families always. But if it's at the top, though, it has far more consequences than if it's the bottom. And if we dishonor God, we have we've not only challenged God, we have challenged the basic order of creation. And we have brought our sins in the world, have brought an ugliness in things, a chaos in reality itself. Well, see, that, that's very much part of what's called the feudal worldview. And even though we may not use that word honor much, but in some ways we do rely upon that concept quite a bit. That is, things are structured in a certain way. And when the top has integrity, the system is more likely to have integrity. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, think about I mean, the, the examples of religion, but uh, in a society, uh, when you know the common person does things wrong, we have ways to handle that. And on the whole, we expect those things to happen, and society can function quite well, even when common people do things wrong. But what about when the judge or the governor or the president does something wrong? Everything now is jeopardized. We still work that concept of an order. Well, that's very much behind what he is trying to explain here. And so, he's dealing with this notion that the world is ordered in a way, and we need to recognize that. And when we live according to how God has ordered things, then we are honoring God. When we have break, when we have broken that order, we dishonor God, and we also destabilize not only our personal lives but the world itself. All right, you got to get that concept in mind. And once we have that sort of notion in mind, we'll understand more of the logic that Anselm brings to this argument. All right, it's a very interesting book. Uh, it it's, has a lot of subtle little arguments and illustrations to it, and I have to admit, you have to kind of you know, get a cup of coffee and take your breath and, 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 and go slowly through it. It's not an easy read. I do think it's worth your effort, though. Uh, but because he's making a lot of subtle points to prove this point, and that is our dishonoring of God has to be rectified. It's got to be rectified. Well, that's that first point that I brought up here. And again, just to reiterate my point, the world is ordered in a way that has justice to it. It's just that the world is ordered the way it is. It is a good world. And in that, there's a beauty to it that we can relish in the goodness and the sweetness of creation if we are properly ordered towards God and towards the world itself. But when we disorder God, we sin. And the magnitude of sin is overwhelming. The greatness of sin is not determined by the sinner but by the one who is offended by the sin. Think about that. Like in law, um, if, um, oh, I don't know, if, if I threatened you 
like, I, you know, I'm going to get even with you. I might even come over and do something to you. You, you could all have me arrested. But what if I threatened, let's say, the President of the United States? Would that be a little more serious? And why? Well, the President, contrary to what some of you may think politically, nonetheless has a very significant role in our, our society. Very, very important. Well, because if I offend him, the magnitude of my offense is greater than if I just offend you, even though it's bad. We have offended a holy, righteous, eternal, infinite God. We have offended in our sin. And Anselm even says if we just have a little you know, bad glance at God, if we just sort of you know, snarl at God a little bit, what we have done is that we have brought an infinite, eternal debt upon us. Not a temporal, finite debt. If I offend you, I can make that right. If I run a red light, I can pay the fine and I'm no longer in debt to the city of Birmingham. If I don't pay my taxes... I can pay them back in penalty and I'm no longer in debt to the United States. But what if I offend God? How can I, a finite temporal creature, limited, not only in my space and time position, but in my mind and my will, ever satisfy the infinite debt that I have towards God? And his answer is you cannot. Once we sin, we create a problem we cannot fix. Now I'll say parenthetically... Um, Most of us modern people are thoroughly are repulsed by such a notion as that. That is, we can do something of real shame. <clears throat> Most of us think our only problem is guilt. That is, if you have a guilt problem, then you can solve your own problem. Pay your debt, do your time, say you're sorry, make it right, whatever it takes. You can correct it, and then you can go on and act as though there are no really sort of lasting consequences. But with honor, though, in dishonor, there are lasting consequences in dishonoring God. We have put ourselves in a state of shame. A state of shame. That's also a word we probably don't use that much. But the Bible's filled with shame. Not that the Bible itself is shame, but the Bible's filled with, with discussing and describing our state as a state of shame. We have created a condition that we cannot rectify ourselves. We, it'd be like trying to pull yourself up off the ground. You cannot do it. You cannot pull yourself off the ground. We cannot take away the infinite offense that we have done against God. The magnitude of it is great. So, we have created a problem. And it's a very, very serious problem. This goes to number three here then. For Anselm then, our, our problem is so severe that there's no way we can ever give complete satisfaction. This is, this is, I think, a little difficult for us because, once again, we don't think in terms of honor and shame. We always think of guilt, rectifying our own problems. If you've got a sin problem, just conf confess it to God. Everything's okay, right? You, you offend somebody, just say you're sorry. Don't you think it's okay? All right, God, I, I know I've, I've offended against you. I've brought dishonor upon you. But tell you what, I'll do ten acts of good deeds. Are we even then? All right, I'll do ten years of penance. Are we even then? We don't ever get even with God. You and I might get even. I might get even with my family. But I cannot get even with God. My debt is immense. So immense that there's no way that I can ever, ever make it right. And, even worse so, and again, this is a concept 
that is a little foreign to us, even though I, th I think there's some real value in recognizing it. And that is, if I could get right with God, I would also have to guarantee that I would never do anything wrong in the future. And that you also would never do anything wrong in the future. Now, that's the part that we don't quite think like. For Anselm, we are all in this together. He thought of humanity as one. He thought all of us share the same destiny as human beings. And so, if I think I can make it right with God, I not only have to say to God, you know, God, I, I, I'm not going to have any more problems in the future, no sweat, and the rest of humanity is not going to do it. Can anyone do that? Of course not. No one can do that. Anytime there is an offense to God, we have put ourselves in a situation that there's no way we can rectify it. Now, let me say a little bit more about what, he, what, what one could call the corporate identity of a human being. Now, again, we are products of our culture. Uh, so much of our culture is based on individualism, self-made people. You're only responsible and accountable to yourself. You can do whatever you want with your own life. Well, uh, there, there is a lot of good things about that. But there's also something kind of missing in that. Go back to the family again. Look how you share the destiny of your family members for good and for bad. Look how many families struggle with things over generations based on things that have happened in the past. Look how all of us in some ways are part of our own culture, that there's an identity that shapes who we are. In a way, you know, people are sort of organized and arranged and somewhat predictable by the people that they are associated with. We become, in a sense, part of a group of people. Sometimes it's to be praised and Sometimes it's to be shamed what has happened. That I bear some shame that I'm not necessarily guilty of. I really do. I don't. I, I know this is somewhat of a contentious point, but I, here's somewhat of an illustration. I was born and raised in Texas. I'm a child of the South. I live in Birmingham. Here it is, 2018. But we all know that here, being people of the South, we share something even though you're not guilty of it, you suffer the consequences of something that happened 200 years ago. And the rest of the country knows that. Now, I may get upset by that. I may say, well, I haven't done anything wrong. Well, that's right. You haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything. But nonetheless, I am part of a people. I'm part of a culture that is in some ways seamless, though it's changed. You could trace it all the way back. This is who we were. Now, we've changed along the way, but what happened there was so significant, you know, racism, slavery, the Civil War. I, I know this sounds like a preposterous statement. I still don't think we're over the Civil War. I really don't. You know, 1865, here we are, uh, still struggling with the consequences of things like that. And though I may not be guilty, I nonetheless bear somewhat the shame of it. I have a corporate identity as being a child of the South. We all have corporate identity. Well, see, just take that notion and then lift it up towards God. According to Anselm, we all have that corporate identity. The sin of Adam and Eve, in a sense, is me. I'm living out that consequence. The sin of Cain and Abel is all of us. Every generation kills his brothers and his sisters. All of us in some way or another, will be part of something that though you may not do individually, we will do it collectively that we would never want to do. All of us will be part of that in some way or another. And so there is a destiny that we share for good or for bad. And what Anselm is arguing is that if you really want or 
if you really think you can make it right with God on your own terms, that I can wipe the slate clean, I can pay the debt, that I am indeed a free person now and I can walk out, then you're going to have to be able to say that nobody else is going to do anything wrong from this point on. And nobody can do that. Well, according to Anselm then, this is a grave, grave issue to face. It is a grave issue that we have created a problem that we cannot solve. That all the great achievements of human history, all the great things that you have done, the wonderful thoughts and the sincere you know, acts, the, the great beauty and wonders that we have experienced in the world, will not solve that problem according to Anselm. And so we're doomed. We are. We're doomed. However, though, Book two in Curtis Homo is the solution to this. This is where we find out why we can believe that indeed we've been rectified, redeemed, reconciled, satisfied. Our debt has been paid. We are at one month with God because what God does. Now, there's a little twist to this. I, uh, I, I can get this out in six or seven minutes here. There's a little twist to this. Um... And this is what makes it work. This is what, this is, this, in my humble opinion, this is the truth of what Anselm is talking about. And that is, whom are we talking about? Like I have, you know, two grown sons. Uh, if they borrow money from me, I will expect them to pay it back. Okay, fair enough. They can satisfy that. Uh, I expect that, um, uh, you know, if, if one of them can't pay it back as a indulging Father, I'll say, oh, don't worry about it. I, I, I don't need it. You don't pay me back. I can do that. I've got the freedom as a father not to demand that my sons always pay back their debts. But God does not have that kind of freedom, interestingly enough. Why? God's job is a little different, so to speak. Not That's not his term. But God's job is a little different than mine. Some of you are, are CEOs of things. You're at the top. You're making decisions about things. You're responsible for your cooperation, for your, your group. Uh, I'm responsible for the classes that I'm involved in. That's why I don't let cheating go on. What if I allowed cheating go on in my classes? I mean, I might be the best teacher that's over there at Sanford. But if I allow cheating go on, what happens to the class? I have to punish cheaters. I've got to. To keep the integrity. Now, a student doesn't have to punish another cheater. That's not the student's job, but it's my job to do that. If you're a CEO, the head of a group, in charge, responsible for things, you have to act in a way that promotes the integrity of the group. God is the God of the universe. God is the one who has created the world in an orderly way, and it has a just and beautiful system to it. And when it's broken, we have put God in a position to fix a problem that God is not guilty of but to fix a problem that only God can do. And God does it because God is just. And because God is holy. God will not let the world peter off into its own doom. That God will not let the world spin out according to its own shame. That God's not going to leave us stuck in the mire of depravity. Why? Because, I know this is a business term, but it's God's job. It's not my job. I can't fix your problem. 
It's not my responsibility to fix your problem. But it is God's being. It is God's very identity as the creator of the world who has created in a way in which there's justice and beauty in it uh, to rectify the problem. We did something in our sin that put God in a certain situation that God could come up with only one solution to do it. Only one. Now, some people at this point could say, well, why didn't God just forget about it? I called a cheater. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. I'm a gracious, merciful guy. What did the rest of the class think? What would happen to the integrity of my class if I said, don't forget, I mean, don't worry about it. I'm not going to punish you at all. Well, if there's mercy without justice, we're still caught in our grave situation. The situation has to be rectified. The dishonor has to be removed. Order has to be restored. So how is God going to do that? God just can't forget it. Can't just say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll be merciful. God's got to change the system. And here's, here's Anselm's contribution to this. God becomes incarnate, becomes a human being, just as you sharing the destiny of all people. As Paul said, he who knew no sin, that is, Christ did not commit specific sins. Christ was sinless in that regard. Christ never misused his freedom to rebel against God and bring dishonor on God the Father. But, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin. He became the destiny of all people. He took our place, in other words. He stands on our behalf. As I, in a sense, in my own rather limited way, stand as the you know, husband and father and grandfather, I kind of represent my family. Christ here represents all humanity because He bore our destiny for us. That which waits all people, that is death and shame, Christ bore. Hence, Christ is the representative of all people. That's Anselm's argument. So, Christ then becomes a human being so that the guilty can pay for theirs. And Christ, as the Son of God, is the only one who can actually pay for it. So, the guilty one pays, and the one who can pay has paid. That's why the God-man. And that's why we believe that we are actually redeemed. For, 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 for just think about it. what if you know a lot of people do this. A lot of people don't like Anselm at this point. They see this as just kind of like a contract negotiation. It's not. A lot of people sort of dismiss this of of Christ as some sort of innocent victim that they just threw up on the cross. Anselm works really hard in the book to say Christ wasn't just a bystander that somebody had to die and, and God the Father just picked this guy. No, Christ is the Son of God. This is born out of the necessity of God's being, as I, as I, as, as as he said that Christ. God's very nature is at stake in this. To make the world right. God loves us that much. That God will make the world right. So, out of the necessity of the divine nature, Christ then dies on the cross. But, go back to my, my point where I, before I ran off on that idea. What if your notion of salvation is that, well, God just forgot about it. How secure is your salvation if it's based on the idea that God just Overlooked it. That's right. And here it is. God's not going to change God's mind. Why? Because we know this came from God's nature. To use you know a term that we often use, it's it's the DNA of God to do something like this. 
I couldn't do it. But it's the very being of God as the creator of the world who is responsible for his justice and order to make it right as the creator of the world. And so how is that done? Only in the God-man. Only in one who bears the fate of all humanity and is the divine reality that can rectify humanity back to its proper order. And so... The, secu- the security we have in our salvation is relative to the very being of God. Not to me, not to you, not to some future generation, not to some sort of wish projection that we might have about God, but it's based on the very being of God. And this is Anselm's, I think, greatest strength in this argument. Now, I'm not saying this will answer all, and there are many other aspects of atonement that we'll be looking at later on. But there is something powerfully compelling about this, I think. We are rightly ordered again. We can live in a world that is true and just and beautiful in our relationship with Christ, because in Christ, we find that we find our atonement with God. Yes, Victor? Is that a, a universal salvation? <clears throat> well, it's interesting you, you ask that question. You can definitely reason that way. That God has reconciled the world. Now, some people don't want that. They'll still continue to reject it. Uh, He did feel like this grace is universal. That the logic of this argument is that grace is offered to all creation by this. It's up to us, by the example of Christ, to live accordingly. Some people will always be in discord with this and hence suffer its consequences. But that grace is still offered to all people. Good question. Any other concluding question? All right. Uh, As you can tell, I'm I'm probably 79% convinced by this argument. Uh, I do think there's a lot of other things to say, but there's something right about this, that when we worship Christ and look at that wonderful painting by Grunwald, We're talking about something that exceeds anything that we could ever do. And it's a gift that is given to us. I, I, let me say this and I'll shut up. I can remember this day as one of those born-again experiences in my life. I had gone through some really tough times and was humiliated by some things. uh, And I remember it just kind of came on to me. You know, I don't have to please God anymore. I don't have to please God anymore. I can be grateful to God. I can live a thankful life. But I don't have to settle my score with God anymore. And this is what Anselm's trying to explain. I'll conclude this with a prayer. Open our eyes that we may see and our hearts that we may feel and our wills that we may live by this great truth that Thou hast given to us. Help us to stand there next to John the Baptist and point to this, that You were in Christ reconciling us unto thy own self. And this I pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.